0: Thus the young and pure would be taught to look at her, with the scarlet letter flaming on her breast. at her the child of honorable parents, at her the mother of a babe that would hereafter be a woman, at her who had once been innocent as the figure, the body, the reality of sin. I won't ruin the book, for those of you who have not read The Scarlet Letter, to go into the depths of what's actually going on, since I know some of you will be reading this in the coming school year. But what's interesting about this quote of Nathaniel Hathorne's Scarlet Letter is that Hester Prynne is made to walk around with this letter signifying her sin. So everyone else around her knows how sinful and how impure she is, and as the quote says, she is the embodiment of sin before the eyes of everyone else around her. But one of the lessons of the book I believe is that it's easier to look at the mark of sin on another than to admit the mark sin is made on my own heart. It's easier to broadcast the faults and the failures of someone else to redirect people's attention away from my own faults and my own failures. And as we've been working through scripture, talking about things like secret sin and talking about compassion on those who come to Jesus, I think the next logical step in thinking about this is just the idea of what God's mission through Jesus is, his purpose, which caught my attention in 1 John as I was thinking through some of these thoughts in previous sermons. When you come to 1 John chapter 2 in verse 1, he makes this statement, my little children, I am writing these things to you so that you may not sin. It's interesting, I think not surprising really, to us that John would make a statement that he's writing this message to them so that they would not sin. Of course, that's, that's part of the purpose of reading scripture and understanding what God wants from us. And we probably um, agree on this idea that when we read scripture and we were trying to work into the mind of God and see what he wants, the purpose of that is so that we may not sin. But what we may not recognize is how to get there. What we may not understand is the path that leads to this idea of purifying ourselves, which he talks about later in chapter 3, a text I want to spend a little bit more time in. I want to jump from from 1 John 2, 1, uh, eventually, a little bit later in the sermon, to chapter 3, and a really interesting text that deals with this idea of our relationship to God and where we are and where we stand and how we're living. But I first want to pay attention to the text that precedes 1 John 2 and verse 1, Because when John wrote this, there were no chapter breaks. It's all flowing right together. And I want us to understand what John is actually saying. What he's connecting this to. When he says, I'm telling you these things so that you may not sin. The the context before this may be somewhat surprising. Now when I read it to you, you won't be surprised. You've heard it before. But it's interesting the path we have to take to get to this idea or activating in our life. This idea of a life or we're not sinning all the time. A life that's walking in the light. That's what he's been talking about, right? This is the message that God is light, and in him is no darkness. And if we say we have fellowship with him while we walk in darkness, we lie and we do not practice the truth. Verse 7, but if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus his son cleanses us from all sin. Here's the interesting part. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is, is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say we have not sinned, we make him a liar and his word is not in us. My little children, I'm writing these things to you so that you may not sin. It's interesting that John doesn't say hide all your sins and don't tell people about them, act like you aren't a sinner, and I want you to know these things so that you may not sin. That's not what he says at all. And if we understand the nature of what's going on in 1 John, we we realize the importance of community in what he's talking about. One of the reasons John's writing this letter, the main reason he's writing this letter, is there's some kind of disturbance. We don't know exactly what that disturbance is. We can only do our best to pull that out of the text and try to figure out what was going on. With this community, but part of the issue here is people have left and they're teaching things that are false. And they're they're trying to get those who are remaining to really pull away from Christ and live a different way. And John's encouraging them: you know the truth, don't do that. Don't follow after these other people. You stand strong in the truth, you keep the words of God, you follow his commandments. And you need to understand there's some things here where we don't know exactly what's going on, but it seems they're separating things like body and spirit and believing they can do the things they want to do. And they've reached this enlightened state of knowledge where we don't have to keep all these rules to to follow Jesus with our spirit. Kind of this proto-Gnostic sort of idea. And John's warning them, don't go that direction. You need to stick together as God's people in this place. And there's some ways you you go about doing this that are going to help you not sin. That's the goal. But it's interesting what that looks like. John tells them, first of all, if we're going to look at what John's saying about how we deal with sin and how we overcome sin and how we begin to build a life that is pure and holy, the first step and maybe a continued step along this path is to realize that we have to admit sin to overcome it. Now, we dealt with this a little bit a few weeks back with Luke 7 and the, the story of the sinful woman, a sermon where, where Simon is here in his house, and Jesus says, do you see this woman? And she's come to me. She's at my feet. She's crying. She's wiping my feet with her hair, and, and you won't even do anything for me. He's, he is presumptuous. He thinks he is right in the eyes of God. He's not going to lower himself to, to this woman's state who he sees as this very sinful, vile creature, and yet Jesus praises her. Because she's willing to do the very thing John's talking about here at the end of chapter 1. She knows she's a sinner. She knows she needs to confess. She knows she needs to come to Jesus. Simon hasn't figured that out yet, which is his great fault. For him to actually overcome the struggles in his life, the place to begin is to admit sin so he can defeat it, so he can overcome it. To stop looking at this woman, just like the people in the story, the Puritans did on Hester Prynne, as this mark, this embodiment of sin. She's over here and, and we're over here. We're a little different than her because she's so sinful and vile. And of course, that's a very comfortable way to look at life because what it does is it keeps me out of the eyes of those around me and makes them think that I'm doing something right when maybe secretly I'm not, which is really part of the whole story. There's some secret vile sin going on in that story, and it is obscured by painting this picture as the woman of sin. And so, those living in sin are deflecting away from themselves to this poor woman. A little bit like Luke 7. And the picture, those around this woman want to paint of her, that she's the sinful woman, not us. And we're fine. She's the one we should be looking at. She's the one we should be keeping out of all of this. We can look down on her because of the things she's done, but not us. We're right with God. But the reality is we all need cleansing. And we all need correction. And that's what John's aiming at in the first part of this this letter. In this section where he's saying if we say we have no sin, we are deceiving ourselves. And then on the other side of that, if we say we have not sinned, we make him a liar. Right there in the middle, it says if we confess our sins, he's faithful. And just to forgive us and to cleanse us. Fellowship with God. And really, by happenstance, fellowship with one another means cleansing. You cannot get away from the community aspect of what's going on in 1 John and the importance of God's people being together and living together and walking together in faith and what that looks like. And what it looks like in a community of believers and in a community of faith is admitting the realities of sin and confessing sin and working together, walking in the light as he is in the light. So that we have fellowship with him and we have fellowship with one another. And by those things happening, we are cleansed by the blood of Jesus Christ. That's chapter one. And he says, I'm telling you all of this so that you will not sin. But the text goes on in chapter two. It's interesting where he goes next. So yes, we need to confess our sins. We need to admit the reality of sin. But then on the other side of this, he says, here's the reality of what it looks like if you know God. Whoever says, I know him, this is chapter 2 and verse 4, but does not keep his commandments is a liar, and the truth is not in him. But whoever keeps his word, in him, truly the love of God is perfected. By this we know that we are in him. Whoever says he abides in him ought to walk in the same way in which he walked. There's a lot of phrases in 1 John, we probably won't be able to tackle them all, but They pull us to mimic the life of Jesus. And this is one of them here. It says, if you say you abide in him, if you say you remain in Jesus, then you ought to walk like Jesus walked. Live the same way Jesus lived. You do things the way he does them. We've had some some great talks recently on Wednesday nights and on Sunday nights talking about this idea Uh, ...of looking to Jesus and following his example. What did it look like when he dealt with sin and how he handled people? And and of course, all of that is extremely important in what John's talking about here. So, what does this look like? What does it look like to live in alignment with Jesus' purpose? The things that he was trying to accomplish. And this is where I want to jump, jump to 1 John chapter 3. And I want to read the first part of this text. And I want us to work through 1 John 3 in connection to what we've already seen earlier in the text... Remembering that loving one another, loving our brothers is a really big focus in 1 John. And this fellowship with God and fellowship with people is uh, an aspect of John's letter that you cannot get away from. And so living in alignment with Jesus looks like this in one sense. You love your brothers. Right? He says earlier in in chapter 2, if you hate your brother, you cannot love God. He's going to say it again later in chapter 4. So this is all interconnected, And the concern is some have left, which he's worried about. He's trying to give them some encouragement to stick together, to love each other, to love God, to follow God's will, to walk in the light and not get caught up in some of the temptations in the world around them, whatever those may be. Then he says this in chapter three, see what kind of love the father has given to us, that we should be called children of God. And so we are. The reason why the world does not know us is that it did not know him. Beloved, we are God's children now. No one born of God makes a practice of sinning, for God's seed abides in him, and he cannot keep on sinning because he has been born of God. By this it is evident who are the children of God, and who are the children of the devil. Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor is the one who does not love his brother. Interesting text. I love how John points out the familial relationship first, that we're his children, and he loves us, right? And everything he says is housed in this metaphor, this idea that God is the father, or he should be our father, and we are his children, and, and that means there's a certain way that we ought to live. And so we start at the foundation that we should be living according to Jesus' purpose. If we're going to claim we follow Jesus, that Jesus is our Savior, that we love him, that we're going to follow him, then the things that we're doing should line up with what Jesus was doing. And there are two statements in 1 John 3 that I want you to take note of that have to do with purpose. Two things that it says in the text about what Jesus was doing when he came to the world. In verse 5, John says, you know that he appeared to take away sins. That's why he came. It is Jesus' mission. He came to take away sin. So I want us to log that in our minds. We're going to come back to that, to that thought of that idea. If we follow Jesus and we're walking in alignment with his purpose, that says something about how we feel about sin and our relationship to sin, because his entire purpose was to take away sin. Then in verse 8, the reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. So two purpose statements in 1 John 3 about why Jesus came. To take away sin and to destroy the works of the devil. So before we go further to talk about what that looks like in our lives, I just want to point out that if we say we're living for Jesus, and we say we're following him, and we're living in alignment with that, we're walking as he walked, then our life will mimic these purposes. Our our life will speak truth about sin and about what it is, not living in acceptance of it. Our life will support the idea that we want to destroy the works of the devil, because that was Jesus' purpose when he came. And I hope you caught those phrases, as I pointed out the first one, about walking as he walked. There are two statements in 1 John 3 that, that tell us we ought to be living or walking as Jesus walked, right? In verse 3... It says, and everyone who thus hopes in him purifies himself as he is pure. That's the whole point I've been making, actually. If we say we follow Jesus, then we should be purifying ourselves as he is pure. If we say we love Jesus, if we say we're following him, a little bit later on, it says, whoever practices righteousness is righteous as he is righteous. That's the calling. Right, it's walking as he walked, purifying ourselves as he is pure, living righteous as he is righteous. This is what it's supposed to look like. If Jesus is our King, if He is our Lord. So, what does this look like? In John's language, what does it mean to live in alignment with God's ideas and with Jesus' purposes? I think it's rather simple in the text. John's not trying to confuse us or make this difficult. He he just makes statements like this. Whoever makes a practice of sinning, is of the devil. Or no one born of God makes a practice of sinning. He actually says that a handful of times in the text. If we read through it, interesting. He points out in Jesus there is no sin, right? So he appeared to take away sin, and in him there is no sin. He's wrote these things to us so that we may not sin, so that in us there would be no sin. It all connects. It all makes sense. This is God's desire for us. He wants us to follow Jesus. He wants to be cleansed by the blood of Jesus so that in us there is no sin, even though we have sinned, even though we have sinned, even though we need to confess our sin. The whole mission of all of that is to follow the purpose of Jesus, to take away sin and to destroy the works of the devil. When we hide sin, the devil is working in us. We are supporting the purpose of Satan. We are working according to his will. We are following the prince of the power of the air, which works in the sons of disobedience. When we hide our sin and we continue in it, we are walking as Satan walks. And he is a sinner from the beginning, John says. So a few of these statements in here. In verse 6, it says, No one who abides in him, being Jesus, keeps on sinning. No one who keeps on sinning has either seen him or known him. If, if we keep on sinning, if we are comfortable with sin in our lives, we don't really understand Jesus. We haven't really seen him for what he is. We don't understand his purpose. We don't understand his mission, what he's trying to do. If we grow comfortable in walking in sin and living in sin, then we don't understand the Jesus John's talking about. What John is telling us, something has to be done about sin. Changes have to be made. We we, we put on Christ and we, we are raised up in newness of life, walking in righteousness, walking a new life. That means there's changes that have to take place and we can no longer be comfortable walking in the darkness while claiming we're walking in the light. This is what John is saying in 1 John chapter 1. Whoever makes a practice of sinning is of the devil. So he's kind of growing in his seriousness here. And we're going to talk about that phrase in just a minute. And no one born of God makes a practice of sinning. So it's interesting. One of the things that's talked about, uh, and I don't want to get deep into this this morning because we just don't have time for it, um, is the, the present tense nature and the aspect of some of these verbs. If you could read Greek and go into 1 John 3, it would say things like, anyone born of God does not sin. Uh, And so there's been some ideas. Now, the translators, I think they do a great job here in in translating the the tense and the aspect of these verbs. And what they do is they put these little explanatory phrases in like, no one keeps sinning or no one practices sin. And they're trying to help us understand the nature of what's going on here in this text and what John is wanting us to get from it. And and it fits perfectly with with what's going on in, in chapter one. And I only point that out because you may encounter someone at some point who has a different lens through which they're seeing scripture, the saying, you know, once you're baptized or once you say you're saved, you don't sin anymore. Uh, That kind of actually goes against 1 John chapter 1, when he tells us, don't say you're not sinning. You have sin in your life, and what you need is the blood of Jesus to cleanse you. And the goal is to be purifying ourselves, to be building this life of holiness that's mimicking the life of Jesus. Jesus. It's it's not pretending like we don't ever sin ever again, or when we come up out of the water somehow miraculously through the Holy Spirit, we never make any more mistakes. That is not the point of 1 John 1, 2, or 3. But what he is saying is a very practical concept, that if we claim to live in alignment with Jesus, we cannot also just continue living in our sins. And here's the ultimate point he gets to with this, and that is that my actions reveal who my Father is. Right? That's the image he starts with. Right? The very beginning of chapter three, see what kind of love the Father has given to us that we should be called children of God. There's power in this metaphor. Uh, our children, when they, when they mess up or they make mistakes, uh, we don't just boot them out of the house. I mean, I would hope not, at least, right? They don't, they don't obey the first time, or maybe even they've become a Christian. We've, we've had some young people who have put on Christ uh, this past week, and maybe they, they make a mistake, they disobey their parents. We don't just then boot them out of the house immediately. Oh, you know, you said you're going to follow Christ, and then you disobey me, you're out. Right? That is not what 1 John is talking about. What he's describing here, and so we, our confidence shouldn't be lacking with that kind of perspective. We are in a kingdom, just like we're citizens of this country, same sort of thing. I've made this point before. As citizens of the United States, if, if we mess up, if we make mistakes, or we, just, we don't just get booted out immediately. Now, if we show we are traitors to the United States, that we stand against this country, they will remove us in some way. If, if we make it clear to our parents that we are not going to live according to the rules, we, the lifestyle we're going to live is not fitting with what they want in their home, then maybe at some point they will tell us, you just can't be here. But it is not something where you're just immediately booted out, right? That's not what John's talking about here. And in fact, that's the point he's making in chapter 2 when he says, I'm telling you these things so that you won't sin, but if anyone does sin, we have an advocate. Isn't that amazing? You know, I messed up. I need help. Young people, I hope that advocate in your home is one of your parents. And parents, if our children don't feel comfortable coming to us, that says something about us as parents. Last week we talked about parenting. We're not talking about that this morning, but we can pull that in. If our children can't come to us when they mess up, that says something about our parenting. We should be leading them to Jesus. Christ is an advocate. He's an advocate to the Father. He stands on our behalf. He knows if our heart is right and we want to walk in the light, as he is in the light, he is there for us. And the concept of 1 John 3 is really one of hypocrisy. If I show up to a place like this three times a week, Sunday morning, Sunday night, and Wednesday, and I put on a face and I act like everything is good, but really I'm actually just continuing to live in sin day by day, that's what 1 John 3 is about. And this whole sermon is not really about secret sin that we talked about a while back, but it certainly fits that scenario. If we have secret sins in our life, this applies. If we are hiding things from our spouse, from our fellow brothers and sisters, if we're trying to pretend like all is well when all is not well, it certainly fits 1 John 3. And our actions, whether done in isolation and by ourselves or in front of other people, speak volumes about who our Father is. We certainly sometimes need help, and we need compassion, and we need grace and mercy in overcoming sin. That's Luke 7. That's the sinful woman who realizes her state and she comes to Jesus. We certainly need that. I need that. All of you need that. Everyone needs that. We also have to to understand the reality of sin, that we cannot continue in it. When when we have come to Jesus and we have admitted the things that we've done, it's not okay to just say, well, I'm just going to continue on this. The grace of Jesus just covers everything and I have nothing to worry about. So what does this look like? What does it look like to continue in sin while claiming to be in the light? I would say that's very prominent in our culture. There is first just the idea that has been really uh, propagated for hundreds of years in a variety of ways, that our bodies are evil and we just can't help sinning, but fortunately Jesus just takes care of it all, right? This is the ver- these are various forms of Gnosticism, and it exists today as well. You know, we're just so wretched, we are so evil, we cannot possibly not sin, Right? Every day I wake up, Tony talked about this not too long ago, every day I wake up and probably by the time my head's come off the pillow, I'm already a sinner and I've already done wrong, I've already done something, I've had an unholy thought or, or whatever it is, this idea, but you know what? Jesus just takes care of it all so I just don't have to worry about it. That's what this looks like. I see it among our brethren sometimes. That is not the gospel. That is not what 1 John 3 is talking about. That is not confession leading to repentance, leading to holiness. That is not what that is at all. That is being comfortable in my sin and continuing to live in my sin, as if all is well. It is twisting and perverting a truth, which is that Jesus is our advocate, and when we do sin, we can come to him and to this doctrine or this idea that we can just continue in sin, that grace may abound. Paul was accused of that very thing, and he said, God forbid, of course that's not what I'm teaching. That somehow we're just going to continue to glorify God because by living in sin, it just shows how great an abundance his grace is. That is a flawed theology, a flawed doctrine at its core. And John points that out very clearly. This idea, the sister idea to this Gnostic concept that our sins highlight God's righteousness, that evil only serves to show God's good, so it's not that bad to just keep going in our sin because it just accentuates God's grace. I'm just so filthy and unholy that I can never, ever live a single day without sinning. This is a bunch of garbage, brethren. I hope that we can live a day without sinning. as we don't understand 1 John 3. We don't understand this message of keeping the purpose of Jesus Christ. He came to take away sin, not for us to dwell in it, He came to destroy the works of the devil, not to continue on in the works of the devil. And yet, many of these ideas persist. The idea of hiding sin and pretending that it doesn't impact anyone as long as it's just me. You know, I'm the only one who is a part of this. No one else is affected by also a complete lie a justification for continuing on secretly in the things that we know we shouldn't be doing, and yes, then there is the stigmatizing of confession, which actually hinders people at times from doing the very thing we talked about at the beginning of the sermon. When we essentially turn those who confess into Hester Prince and mark them with a scarlet letter, we hinder the purpose of Jesus. And allowing people to say, yes, I have sinned and I need the blood of Jesus to cleanse me. I need to be in fellowship with God. I need to be in fellowship with all of you. And I need my sins cleansed. And there is certainly an element that sometimes exists in which those kinds of people are stigmatized. They're marginalized. They're pushed aside, right? For the very reason that Hester Prim was in the Scarlet Letter. Keep a distance from the unholy one, right? Then people might think, I am not holy. People might might realize I have sin so we want to mark her and keep her off to the side and act like oh surely I'm not like that. But our actions reveal who our true father is. So the lesson is we have to change. That's what John wants us to understand. Christ is our advocate doesn't mean we just keep living in sin, that we just keep our secrets, we keep living the way that we've been living in the past, and that magically the blood of Jesus will just keep cleansing us repeatedly over and over again with no effort on our part to actually change anything. That is not the message of 1 John. It's actually just the opposite. That God is light. And in him is no darkness. And if we say we walk in the light... When we walk in darkness, we lie. And the truth is not in us. We have an advocate. That's the message of the gospel. Despite the evils in my life and the things I've done wrong, there's a way out. There's a plan. Right? Young people, it's kind of like when you know you've done something wrong, but you trust that your parents have a solution. If you don't, you won't come to them. But if you do, knowing how badly you've messed up, you will still come to them and say, I'm really messed up. And I need you. That's what it means for Jesus to be the advocate in a much bigger way. He is the propitiation for our sins. We come to him and we follow at his feet just like that woman in Luke 7 and we say, I I need you. You are the answer. And realizing that we've sinned, we confess those sins, and we make those things right. And he is just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So not only do we have fellowship with him, but we have fellowship with everyone else who has done the same. We are all in the same boat. And then what he wants from us, as he shows us in 1 John chapter 3, is that we don't continue in sin. We don't just find comfort in living in our sin. No, just the opposite. Everyone who has hope hope in Jesus Christ if you have hope in Jesus Christ this is the message you purify yourself John says as he is pure so whatever sins I'm struggling with whatever sins you're struggling with we aren't happy about those we aren't comfortable but we are in a journey we're on a process to remove those things from our lives in an effort to be more like Jesus Christ and to be righteous as he is righteous C.S. Lewis said, we have a strange illusion that mere time cancels sin. Time does not cancel your sin. He goes on to say, only the blood of Jesus Christ can do that. And that's the calling this morning. Will you come not for time to wipe away your sin, but for the blood of Jesus to cleanse you from all unrighteousness? and to begin walking as he walked. Can we help you this morning? Why don't you come as we stand and we sing together?